please turn to Psalm 2. This psalm at first blush does not look like a likely psalm to preach from. I found it a difficult passage to prepare. And I, as I was reflecting about that, I was thinking that probably part of that be, is because in, in many ways, I think it's, it's removed from our traditional understanding and approach to scripture. I feel a little, in, in, in preaching out of Psalm 2, I feel a little like a landlocked Kansas boy, which I suppose I am, or at least was, uh, sitting on a pier down in Virginia Beach and dangling my toe in the water and on the phone with somebody else back in Kansas trying to explain to them the vastness of the oceans that cover the world, trying to explain to them the complexity of the biological uh, life that happens within those oceans, uh, trying to explain to them uh, the storms and the hurricanes and the typhoons uh, and the tsunamis that happen on the ocean, all simply by by hanging my toe in the water and explaining this over the phone. Uh, that's a little the sense I have as I read Psalm 2, is that this is a vast ocean, uh, and and here I am trying to comprehend this and explain it. But the, but the, the more I, I studied this psalm, the more I became convinced that it is central to our understanding. And if we're going to have an, an understanding that is accurate of who Jesus is and what his plan is in the world, we have to understand the themes that are in this psalm. Basically, my message today is going to be that Jesus is the king. If we're going to understand our lives and if we're going to understand the gospel, we have to understand that Jesus is king. Here's the sermon plan. It's basically in, in three parts. We're going to, to look at an overview of the psalm, and then we're going to do just a whirlwind history tour of Old and New Testament. And then at the end, there's going to be a so what? So what does it matter if Jesus is king? Let's read together from Psalm 2, but before we read, just a, a brief introduction here. This is what is, is called a royal psalm. It has to do with, with kingship. But more specifically, it's a coronation psalm, meaning that a king is being crowned. So it's actually looking back now on the king being crowned. And what happens at a coronation ceremony is that a crown is brought out and placed on the head of a king. There's some kind of decree that's given to the king about who he is and what he's supposed to do. And then there's a proclamation made saying, Essentially, here's your king. This is your new king. And then finally, there is an anointing that happens. So the king is anointed with oil, and all of that is what goes into actually making him king. And as we read through this, you will see elements of what a coronation is in this psalm. This psalm is in... in let me back up. This psalm is written sort of like this, this vast global drama. It really is global in its, in, its, in its reach. And what I'd like for you to do is observe it a little like you would if you were watching a play. 
Except if you're going to watch a global drama, you're going to have to get probably way out in space. Maybe you'll have to get a box seat on the moon. But I'd like you to be out there and looking at this drama as we read. It's in four acts. Each, every set of three verses is one act in this global drama. As you sit there on the moon and watch what's happening on the earth, attend carefully. It's a little foreign to our way of thinking, but there's some very fascinating things happening as we read. Let's read here in Psalm 2. First act. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Act 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Act 3. The king speaking now. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Act 4. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, this psalm, as I said, is looking back on a coronation. And the narrator of the psalm is remembering how God himself has installed a king. And he's noting here in the first three verses the rebellion of the nations. Now, in those days, a powerful nation could rule over servant nations. Those servant nations would have to pay tribute. They'd have to pay taxes to the more powerful nation, and they'd have to obey the laws of that more powerful nation. Now, if you were a servant nation paying tribute to a ruling nation and obeying the laws of a ruling nation, you might find yourself getting a little tired of this. This is exactly what happened here in the 13 colonies some centuries ago. We have a servant nation, and it is paying taxes to King George III. And it is obeying laws from King George III. And there came a flashpoint when the leaders of the 13 colonies said, it's odious. We can't take this anymore. And they said, in essence, let us burst King George III's bonds asunder and cast away his cords from us. Their official language, uh, I, I doubt they knew they were quoting from Psalm 2, but it was very close to that. Their official language is in the Declaration of Independence. Listen to this. They were going to, they were going to in their words, dissolve the political bonds that held the two nations together. Well, so now what is George sitting on his throne over in England? What's he going to say? Ah, well, we don't really need them anyway. Of course not. What's his response? He sends over the troops. He's going to declare war. Well, that's again, that's what's happening in this psalm, except we don't quite find the response that we expect. 
God doesn't declare war in verses 4 to 6, the second act of our play. What God does instead is he says this kind of surprising response. I have a king. I have anointed somebody who is king. So what's going on here? Why is it that this announcement of a king strikes terror in the hearts of these rulers? We don't quite know. We don't, the, the poet's going to leave us hanging for just a moment while we try to figure out why are the rulers of the subject nations threatened? Why are they fearful at God's pronouncement that he has set a king on his throne? We don't know exactly, but I think we can surmise that part of what's going here is that this king that God has anointed, that God has set on the throne, is a threat to the autonomy, to the independence of these subject nations. They want to make their own declaration of independence, and somehow God's anointed is going to threaten their autonomy. Let's keep going through here, verses 7 to 9. Now the speaker changes. The narrator has been on the stage and telling the story, but he steps back and the king steps forward. And the king's story is essentially three points. Number one, God has appointed him. And number two, he's going to rule not just over Israel, but he's going to rule over the entire globe, every nation of the globe. And thirdly, and somewhat violently, he's going to dash them to pieces. He's going to, with like, like a rod of iron, striking a clay pot. He's going to shatter them. So what we find here is that in this psalm, and in, in, in world politics, the anointed one of God is a key player. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that. But what you need to know for now is that God's anointed is a key player, not just in this psalm, but in world politics. Now, this, this strikes us as a bit strange, I think. But, but what I find interesting here is there is no shame in these what seem to be very violent expansionist policies. He's got the whole globe in his sights. Now, we've, we've seen something a little bit like this uh, in, in many empires that have come and gone over the centuries. The one I want to focus in on is the British Empire from, say, the 1800s uh, into the early 1900s. They also had a vigorous expansionist policy. In fact, it was so vigorous that it was said that the sun never sets on the British Empire. What they mean is that the British land holdings were so vast. So, so Britain had Canada, Australia, India, huge swaths of Africa. And as the globe turned, there was so much land all around the globe that the sun literally never set on British holdings. Britain had maybe, at the peak of their empire, they had maybe 25%. That's a lot of land. But it's small compared to what the king's anointed intends. He intends 100% of the land. That seems a little stiff, but he's not done. In 10 to 12 now, the story stops, and now 
he directly addresses the audience with a warning. And here's the warning that he gives you. Essentially, the narrator says, look, the king has told you his plan. He is going to rule over all the nations. And your job is simply this, to submit. You are to become servant nations. There is no declaration of independence allowed. And if you try a declaration of independence, he will smash you. How's that for politically correct language? But, he says, if you submit, you will flourish. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So here's my question for you. Am I the only one in this room who finds this a little bit uncomfortable? It's so totalitarian. Where is the consent of the governed in this? Where is, as Lincoln so nicely put it, government by the people, of the people, for the people? Now, as long as we keep this psalm safely confined to a church service within these four walls, we keep it a little bit quiet, and maybe just kind of quietly move to another section of the Bible that we feel more comfortable with, don't talk about it too boldly, it seems like we're fine. But here's the problem. The declaration of the king, as represented here in the psalm, it's not private at all. It's very public, and it has very public implications. Let's look at that a little bit. The nations, the rulers, the peoples, the kings, in our first act of this of this psalm, those people who plot against the Lord, they are numerous and they are prominent. They're public figures. These are the people who run wars and run school systems and run for presidents. Now, <clears throat> I've had to wonder if I had the opportunity would I be courageous enough to read this psalm in front of the UN delegates in New York City? I've, I've had to wonder if I read it to them in short sleeve English, how would they respond? So this psalm, as I, as I picture it, this psalm, or actually the king in it, strides up to those sophisticated, cosmopolitan, suave, urbane, educated UN delegates. And they're wearing their suits and ties and their shiny patent leather shoes. And he strides up, swinging a rod of iron. I am more than just a bit uncomfortable with that. It seems barbaric compared to their sophistication. So here we have a god of wrath who installs a king. He gives him a rod of iron. And then the king says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and kill you. So do you see what's going on as I describe this to you? I'm telling you I'm uncomfortable with God as he describes himself. He isn't sophisticated enough for my comfort level. It's too violent, and it's too political for my refined tastes. But guess what I've done now? I've just shown you my cards. 
I've just shown you that I'm actually one of the people in verses 1 to 3 who's rebelling against God. Okay, so maybe that's just a little overdramatic, isn't it? Let me show you what's happening. It's fairly easy for us. In fact, it's fairly popular to say, I believe in God as long as I get to define who that God is. And as long as he's a God of love and what he does is blesses and saves people, I'm pretty comfortable with that. But once we start talking about this God who gets angry and swings an iron bar, we start getting just a little nervous. Well, why? Because that's not the God we want. I think we should be honest and see that when we take his love part and just keep quiet about his wrath part, we are joining the people who are plotting against him and who want to burst the bonds apart. We're making our own declaration of independence against the king. There are, there are two ways of rebelling against the king. One is just to say you hate the king and you want to overthrow his rule. That's a bit what they did here in the colonies. That's what happened in the French Revolution. And there are people out there who do that with God, who say, we hate him and we want absolutely nothing to do with him. But there's another way to rebel against the king, and I think it's the way that we tend to do it when we rebel against the king, and that is you switch loyalties from one king to another, a bit like you had a choice of loyalties between Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. And what happens here, when we only take the love and blessing part of God and we quietly look the other way at the anger and the iron bar, what we're actually doing is we are making up a king who is different from the king as described in the Bible. We're creating an other king and we want to serve him and then we are the rebels. But you know what? That's a dangerous game to play. Because if you're going to choose between kings, you better choose carefully. If you're going to choose between where your loyalty lies, choose carefully. Because as the loyalists found out in the colonies, if you go with the king who's less powerful, you have a price to pay. And so we have maybe 80,000 loyalists after the war. Back then, that was a lot of people. Maybe 80,000 loyalists after the war who stayed loyal to the king of Britain had to flee the country. They were no longer welcome here. They chose wrong. However, on the other hand, you don't just want a king who's powerful. If you're choosing loyalties, you need to choose both a king who's powerful, but then once he's in power, you want to make sure that he is a king who is good and just and benevolent. In Christianity, we have just such a king who is both powerful, but he's also good and just. Okay, but how does that coincide with the picture we have of the king here in Psalm 2? How can we say that the God of the Bible is a God of love when right here it's clearly stated that his anger is quickly kindled. Think of it this way. Somebody who can't get angry also 
is not a person who loves. If, if you as a parent deeply love your child and your child is threatened by, say, a kidnapper, you're not simply going to whistle a tune and try to have a civil discussion about the matter. No. If you care about your child, if you're a good parent, you get angry if there's a real threat there. But you will also do that if the threat is from within. And so you tell your daughter repeatedly, do not go pedaling your trike out into the road. And she goes pedaling her trike out into the road. Your response ought to be one of anger. If it's not a response of anger, if you're just like, okay, whatever. I mean, we probably need to talk about this some more. You're clearly not a caring parent and probably not a very human one either. So it's not only false to say that a God of love can't be a God of anger. In fact, we need to go further and we need to say that a God of love, if he's truly a God of love, he must be a God of anger. We need to understand that if we gloss over the parts of God that in our society now are uncomfortable for us, if we gloss those over, we are actually setting ourselves against God as he has actually described himself. All right, we've done here a quick overview of the psalm. We found that the key player in the psalm is the Lord's anointed. Uh, He's the king God has installed. The nations rebel against him. This king is saying, kiss the son lest he become angry. We need now to step back from Psalm 2 and take this idea of the king and see how does this fit into the large story. So there are two things we're after. We want to see, how does this fit into the Old and New Testaments? How is that thread taken through there? But we also want to see then, how does this fit into our own lives? So, Like I said, this is going to be a whirlwind history, so you'll probably just have to kind of hang on for the ride. Uh, let's start in Genesis 12, and that's going to be our first scenic overlook. Genesis 12, and we begin with Abraham. I want to remind you of what has happened up to now. You'll remember that after God created the earth, we have the fall. And now the implications of that are working their way out in human life. Mankind has discovered how to kill each other. They have gotten so bad that God has obliterated them with a flood. And now things are not getting better after the flood like we might have hoped, but they're actually getting worse. And in Genesis 11, we kind of hit this climax where they build the Tower of Babel and they essentially, through that tower, are declaring their own, making their own declaration of independence. Now, what's going to happen? Is God going to come in and wipe them out with a flood again? Well, no, he's promised not to do that. What's his response to this sin, this declaration of independence? It's interesting and it coordinates with what we see in Psalm 2. Take a look here in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you highlights from it. God calls out one man. He calls out Abraham out of relative obscurity, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you, a single man. Not meaning that he wasn't married, but meaning that he was just one. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, And Abraham, here's where it's all going. Through 
you. I bless you, but through you, I bless all the families of the earth. Now, how's that for a response to the chaos and anarchy of Genesis 2 through 11? Here's the take-home from this. Remember this from from this overview of, of Abraham. God's design is through this man to bless all the families of the earth. Hang on to that one, and now let's look at David. If you want to glance at this, this is from 2 Samuel 7. Again, I will not read this, but I'll give you an overview of what's happening here. God is speaking to Nathan in a vision. Nathan's going to go and speak to David. And here's what he's going to tell today tell David from God that again God has called out one man and again God will make his name great in all the earth and God's people will have their own land which again is one of the things he told Abraham they will have rest from their enemies they will live in peace but now is this he will establish his throne forever now establishing his throne forever is not just simply that somewhere in Jerusalem in a museum we can go and find an ivory throne and say, wow, isn't that a nice showpiece? No, what he means is that somebody in David's lineage is going to rule, not just during the time of Israel, but he's going to rule forever. It's a long time. Now, how do these, sorry, here's the, here's the take home. Whereas God's design for Abraham was through Abraham to bless all the families of the earth, Here's your take-home from David, and that is God is going to set up a king, and this king is going to reign in the lineage of David. This king is going to reign forever. Now the question is this, how do these two covenants intersect? Remember the vision of Psalm 2 where the reign of the king extends to all the nations of the earth. Remember that through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How does the blessing of Abraham to all the families of the earth, how does it happen? And here it is. It's through the reign of a king. Now, here's the thing that we absolutely cannot miss, and that is that the world will never be fully blessed until the benevolent rule of God is fully established. Let me say that again, because this one's important. The world will never be fully blessed until the benevolent rule of God is fully established. And that begins with the called out and a blessed out people, and it spreads through all the earth. Before we move into the New Testament, we have to look at one other psalm Turn to Psalm 67, and what we find in Psalm 67 is a fusing of these two covenants and of this vision in Psalm 2 in a way that is just incredibly beautiful. Notice notice the elements of the, the covenant to Abram. Notice the elements of the covenant with David. Notice how it incorporates this throne idea. Here we have verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? So that God's way may be known on earth and his saving power to all nations. And then look at the response of the nations. 
Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Why do they praise God? Next verse. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For, and here it is, you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. There's the vision in a nutshell. God will rule over the nations, and it's a good thing. Those nations, they write songs about God's gracious rule. They sing about God's gracious rule because they enjoy the life that is made possible when God is king. Now, we need to continue to trace this path, the king's path, into the New Testament, but we have, have to cover cross some bridges before we get there. You'll remember out of verse uh, out of Psalm 2 that we spoke of God's anointed. Well, in Hebrew, the word anointed is something like Mashiach, Messiah. Do you see the connection that's happening there? God's anointed, God's Messiah is a king. And as we cross on over this bridge from Old Testament to New Testament, we enter now into Greek land, where we have a Greek word for the same. That means anointed, and it's Christ. And so in the New Testament, we, when we say Christ, we have to understand that this is God's anointed one. This is God's king. See, I think often we think Christ is sort of Jesus' second name. But it's not his last name. It's a title, like president is a title. And in the same way that when, when President Obama was a child, I expect his, his, his mother didn't say, President, come in for dinner. No, she says, Barack, come in for dinner. But now we say President Obama, that's his title. In the same way, Jesus the Christ is Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King. And so... When you say Christ Jesus, if you think King Jesus, you're getting pretty close to what is actually meant there. Now let's trace the thread of this anointed one, this Messiah, this King, this Christ. Let's trace that thread into the New Testament. And here we get into a bit of the Christmas story. Would you turn to Matthew 1? What I'd like you to be thinking about as we read this and as, as we look over this is is as we look at these parts of the Christmas story, how might this shape your telling of the Christmas story? How might it shape your understanding of who Jesus is? I'm going to have to make this a, uh, as we go whirling through these scenic overlooks, we're just going to, you're going to have to look fast. Maybe take a picture and go back and look at the pictures later. Uh, but let's just, let's take a quick look at this. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of, there it is, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, the king. He starts right in with it. But look where he goes. The son of David, the son of Abraham. He immediately invokes the covenant that God has made with David and Abraham. Look down in verse 16, for he concludes the genealogy of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew wants to make it clear who this Jesus is. He is the Christ. And if it's not clear enough, let's reiterate it in verses 17 and 18. And he cites again, Abraham to David, and then David to the deportation. And then again, he comes back with, from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ. So Matthew here is underlining it. 
he's putting it in bold print that the Messiah, the King, the Jews have been waiting for, he's actually come. He's here. In chapter 2, you'll see Matthew doing the same thing. Jesus is born in the days of Herod the king. And then Matthew turns and immediately pits Jesus the king. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Do you see how he's putting them against each other? Matthew, who's informed, who's soaked in the scriptures, and he understands the story that Psalm 2 is telling, that there are going to be rebel kings. And he's saying, here's Herod. He's one of these rebel kings. And you look later at Matthew, watch what Herod does. You'll see that. But we know what the end of that story is going to be. All right, what does Luke do with it? We turn to Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. There it is again. He's showing the rulers of the age. But look at now the announcements uh, that are happening here. Sorry, this is before the announcements. This is now verse 4. Where does Joseph go up? Luke very deliberately tells us that he goes to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of, and here he is again, the house and lineage of David. Luke is trying to tell us something. We need to listen carefully to what he's saying. Look, here it is again in Luke 11, uh, sorry, Luke 2, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is what? Christ, the Lord. Luke, along with Matthew, is telling us in bold print, look, the Messiah is here. The King has come. Here's what we dare not miss. Jesus has come not just as one who saves people from their sins. He is Jesus the Christ. He's Jesus the King. He comes as a baby, but he also comes as a ruler. Here's what I think is one of Luke one thirty two. I think it's one of the best scenic overlooks of the New Testament on this idea. Luke one thirty two. Uh, he will be great and we will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's just firmly tying it back to the promise to David. Now, we could follow this on into Luke's account in Acts. And what happens in, in Acts is we've, we've seen how Jesus has been proclaimed king at the birth of Jesus. But the same thing happens at the birth of the church. And guess what we see at the birth of the church at the beginning of Acts when Peter preaches his first sermon after the Spirit comes. Peter talks about David. And he talks about David who is the Christ and, and how God now says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is Jesus he's talking about. Jesus, the one who is now on a throne at the right hand of God, and he is ruling. And it's no coincidence that at the end of Luke's narrative, we find him right in the heart of enemy territory. He's in Rome. And there he's proclaiming the gospel right under Nero's nose, the opposing ruler. 
All right, so here we've had this whirlwind overview now of Old and New Testaments and tracing this concept of the anointed one, the king, through Old and New Testaments. So what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. If we neglect Jesus as king, we neglect a key element of what the Gospels are trying to teach us about who Jesus is. Someone has compared the, the various themes coming through the Gospel with various speakers. So in a, in, a, in a stereo system, you might have four different speakers, and each of those speakers will be pulling out parts of the orchestra. In a similar way, the Gospels have these different themes that run through. And if we have one speaker turned up too loudly, it makes it difficult to hear the other speaker. And so if we have this speaker that says, Jesus is my Savior, and he comes to save me from my sin, if that's turned up too loudly, it makes it difficult for us to hear the speaker that says, Jesus is my King, and I must submit to him. The fact is, we have to recognize that Jesus is king. And in fact, we need to identify ourselves in the first act of Psalm 2 to recognize that we are the people who have rebelled against the king. And we have said we're going to throw his bonds off. We've plotted against him. And to us, he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. You see, the Son does want to bless us, but he can't do it on our terms. He wants to bless us, but on his terms. And it can only be as we submit to his gracious rule. And so he concludes the psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And here's what we learn. We have only two choices. We can either take refuge in him or we will be forced to take refuge from him. But what we learn is there is no refuge from him. Those who try that way will perish. The second thing that I want to point out in conclusion here is that if we neglect the speaker in our stereo system that says Jesus is the king, we lose courage. We will huddle discouraged as we hear the daily news of the ills in our land. There's a wonderful story in Acts 4, and I want to conclude with this and uh, in invite you to turn to Acts 4. Here in Acts 4, Peter and John have been preaching to the people. They've been telling who Jesus is, and the rulers, of course, we come to expect this now, the rulers are not happy about this, and they take Peter and John into custody. And then as they're talking with Peter and John and trying to dissuade them, they call them and, and they basically tell them, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here's essentially what they're saying. Keep your beliefs private. We don't care if you hold your beliefs but you hold them at home. And don't you go making assertions that this Jesus has any claims on the rest of us. Does that sound vaguely familiar? 
Doesn't that sound a little like our society where you can hold your beliefs, just don't try to tell me what I ought to believe? Might our society have said that religion is a private affair and we should keep it out of our courts and out of our schools and out of our town halls? Now put yourself in Peter and John. They're with the bigwigs in Jerusalem. It's a little intimidating. What might give them the courage to go on and proclaim the gospel? Look at what they do. They go to their friends and they pray together. And now look at what happens in verse 24. Here they're praying. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Now look, familiar territory. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They know their scriptures and they're using them in this time of danger. And now let's read what else they say. For truly, now they begin to apply it to their situation. They map themselves and their situation into what the scriptures say. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy ser servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Please note what they do. They understand the large story of Scripture. They're living at a moment in time when they are threatened. It's intimidating. But what they do is they take their moment in time and they find that place in the grand narrative of Scripture. They understand the Psalms. They've read them. They know that what's happening here is exactly what we should expect to happen, that Jesus is king and people are rebelling against him. But guess what? They know the rest of the Psalm as well. And they know that the king is going to win. And they pray for boldness. And that's exactly what we see happening there. At the end of this, in verse 31, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See, if we don't know this story, if we don't understand the story that Psalm 2 tells us about, we're going to cower and we're going to huddle. And we're going to be intimidated by the dictates of the powerful and the influential. If we don't place ourselves in that large world of Psalm 2, if we don't realize that Jesus, the king, right now sits on his throne, and he's not at all taken off guard by these antagonists, if we don't realize that, then we will be taken off guard by the antagonists. And they will shut us up, and we will be the quiet in the land. No. Let earth receive her king. For... He rules the world with truth and grace. May we own him. May we move with fresh boldness out into the world, proclaiming joy to the world. The Lord has come. Jesus the Christ reigns forever and ever. Hallelujah.